Well, good evening. It's good to be in front of you again from the standpoint that the one who prepares the message is the one who generally is the best fed. I'm sorry you don't have a better speaker tonight, but we'll have to make do. Um, you know, I was asked to speak two to three months ago for this evening, and pretty quickly the Lord's laid something on my heart to talk about. And it's been interesting, in the intervening weeks, uh, several brothers have spoken on topics that are almost like a stepping stone, and perhaps this is just one message that's going to lead on to others. I'm encouraged, of course, because there's some indication, well, the, the Lord's doing the leading, and I, I certainly hope that we hear from nobody but the Lord tonight. Um, I want to go to one of the minor prophets, and in doing so, I'm going to follow one of our brothers who did this a few weeks ago. First, we had Jeff who spoke on unity, unity in the, uh, in the spirit and unity in the, the bond of peace. And it was all uh, structured around that we are a body, many members, but one body, uh, being built up to serve a purpose, to work unto the Lord. Shortly thereafter, our, our brother... Um, Our brother um, David spoke on the unity of the body, the body of Christ. Again, a, a similar message. Speaking from one of the minor prophets, he spoke how we get focused on serving the flesh and meeting our own needs and get caught up in the, the structure of life as, as, um, as we were seeing there, they were supposed to be rebuilding Jerusalem, but they were living in their own paneled houses and not looking after the things of the Lord, and the Lord wouldn't bless them. All they planted was blown away. And um, our brother Rick spoke on Christ, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Again, this is what we're built on. We're the body. And as Paul said, there's no other foundation upon which we can build. Of course, he did give us a warning. Be careful how you build. He said, I build as a wise master builder, and we must be careful how we build upon it, for what we build through our works is going to be tested. Now, our sins are forgiven and gone, but our works are going to be evaluated. And Paul warns us that there's going to be some that all their works will burn up. They themselves will be saved, but as if passing through fire. So there's some, there's some warnings there. Where I thought this message was going to go initially is it's somewhat changed. The Lord has changed it, I think, because my need was different. And so I'm going to share with you where the Lord has spoken to me. And my conscience has been pricked. I'm going to speak really on pride. Now, they may seem a non sequitur towards the body of Christ, but this is a foundational issue that determines virtually everything we do, where we stand on the issue of pride, because... Pride is a poison. It poisons us. It can paralyze. And ultimately, it prevents. Well, we're going to go to um, a minor prophet. And if there's one verse in this book that most people would know, it would be uh, this one verse, uh, Habakkuk. And so many of you know we're going to go to Habakkuk 2.4. I want to turn there and read it and consider what the prophet is saying. And then we're going to take it and we're going to delve into the New Testament, spend most of our time in the book of Romans. So Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Let's look to the Lord again. Father, we thank you for all scripture written beforehand, knowing it's for our education and that through its perseverance and encouragement, we might have hope. We pray that you would reveal to us tonight truths that we need, that we desperately need to be effective, to be clean vessels, to be sanctified in honor that we can be used by you to build your kingdom. Speak to us tonight and let no words but yours pass through these lips and if something is misspoken, let them hear what you would have them hear, Father. In all things, we look to the power of your Spirit in all we do, and we offer praise 
and glory and all exaltation to your name and to that of Jesus Christ, in whose name we come before you. Amen. Habakkuk 2.4, the interpretation. Well, contextually, uh, the prophet is speaking about the Babylonians who are coming to invade uh, Judea and to destroy Jerusalem and take them captive. But I would say that Scripture demands that we take this passage and apply it to our lives, our lives uh, daily and in our daily walk. And I say that because, as many of you are aware, this, this verse is quoted in a different context than what the, the prophet gives it, but it's the same idea. And it's quoted in three books in the New Testament. And I would say that this verse is foundational to each of those books. I believe that all three of the books are written by the Apostle Paul, but if not, certainly they're written by the Spirit. Um, We'll find that it's quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Romans is the uh, essential legal document. It really defines the relationship between man and God. God is holy and man is, is depraved. The Apostle Paul quotes it, well, starting with, with verse 16, he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why not? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And moving into verse 17, where our passage is quoted, he says, speaking of the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed faith unto faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans tells us who the just are, and it's through faith. In Galatians, Galatians reveals to us um, what brought us to justness. Again, it's faith. It's not works. The Apostle Paul, again, quotes Habakkuk in verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Finally, in Hebrews, um, again, I, I believe Paul wrote this, but again, if not, it's the Spirit, but certainly the same thing. This is a book that I believe that's written to believers, and certainly this passage in the context that it's quoted, he's speaking to a believer. Hebrews 10.38, we're told, as he quotes our passage from Habakkuk, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews is a warning that we remain vigilant, that we remain on track, that we live in faith. That is pleasing to God. It is also the outward manifestation that we believe what the Word of God says. Every time we're disobedient, we're just manifestly demonstrating we don't believe what the Word of God says. When it says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, he's speaking about a righteous person, and it immediately says, but if he shrinks back, this same one who's righteous... My soul has no pleasure in him. Well, we looked at this foundational verse from Habakkuk. I've talked about the three books of the Bible that is in the New Testament, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. I want to drill down into Romans, and this is going to, again, fit that pattern of the unity of the body of Christ, who we are as brothers and sisters, all united together, baptized into one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, and that the purpose God has in that is bringing us together as all these disparate members united to build a, a kingdom of worship for Jesus Christ, to bring glory unto God, to do good works that men on earth may glorify our Father in heaven, that we may have an open door to, to share the gospel. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that's, I don't know if it's going to be more uncomfortable for you or for me, but... I'm going to ask you to ignore what I'm saying for the next couple of minutes and pick up the hymnals. And it doesn't matter, just pick up a red one or a black one. And I'd like you to pick out a hymn that speaks to your heart, that allows you to freely and from the depths of your heart worship God. Just, it can be a favorite hymn. It can be one that he's speaking to you here recently. Um, and if you want to hear what I'm saying, you can go back and listen to the tapes later. I'm just going to give a chapter synopsis of Romans before we dig into the passages that we're going to be going over. So pick up your hymnals. Um, a summary of Romans, again, is, like I said, the essential legal document defining our relationship uh, to God. Chapter 1, we get the gospel that is exalted and that um, we talk, it talks about unbelief and its consequences. 
Chapter 2 is the impartiality of God. It talks how the Jews are condemned by the very law they're trying to keep. Uh, chapter 3, all the world is guilty, and justification comes by faith. Four, uh, justification by faith is evidenced abundantly in the uh, Old Testament. In uh, chapter 5, we, we're told that the results of faith is justification. We have that glorious verse we spoke about it this morning. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, we're told the believers are dead to sin, but alive to God. How glorious that is. And then we get into chapter 7, where, again, we're told we're, we're united to Christ, but we have all those troubling passages about the old nature and the new nature. We see that the old nature has no good, the new nature has no power. Now, Paul is trapped by who's going to deliver me, and the answer for that is chapter 8, where um, deliverance from the bondage comes by the power of the Holy Spirit and victory in Christ. Uh, it, this glorious chapter tells us we're foreknown, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified. That chapter begins with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it concludes with there's no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. Chapter 9, we're told that Israel set aside nationally for a time because of their unbelief. And uh, 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, the importance of the gospel. 11 is, it's really a glorious chapter that pronounces God's promises will be kept. Israel is not cast away. If they're broken off, and we're blessed in that we're grafted in in their place, how much more when the promise of God is fulfilled and they're grafted back in. Chapter 12 is an abundant life of servants, Paul tells us. Uh, chapter 13, he exhorts us to be in subjection to government, and it gives us a golden rule. Now that's chapter 13, and chapter 16 is Paul's greetings and his love expressed. And yes, I can count. I did leave out 14 and 15 because that's where we're going to go and spend a major portion of our time. And I want to turn there now and read. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 13, verse 8, for some context. And this is all going to really have to do with how we deal with one another. So if you turn to Romans Chapter 13 and verse 8. And we're going to read quite a portion of Scripture here. That way you won't have to listen to me as much. And besides that, the Scripture is the only part of the, the message that I can guarantee is without error. Um, Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is a fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This sets the tenor of what we're going to dig into primarily in chapter 14 and the beginning part of chapter 15. And there's three principles that we're, we're going to cover. Uh, the first one is looking forward, and it is conviction. It's those things that in our heart we know are true and we know are right, so we should follow them and we should do what we know is right. The second principle really is looking back. It's conscience. It's then after having done something, we do not want our conscience to to be pricked, to condemn us for having done something which was wrong. So again, our conscience should be our guide to keep us from doing what, what is wrong. Finally, uh, the third principle, it's not really looking forward or backwards, it's looking at others. It's looking at others and making a determination in our own heart that we're not going to injure or cause to stumble one of our brothers or sisters. Now, we can use this for the world as well, but it, this is written to believers. 
in dealing with believers. Rather, we ought to look at how will my actions affect them and how will it cause our brothers and sisters to begin to act based on what we've done. So with that, we'll go into uh, chapter 14 and read through again a a very uh, well-known passage, uh, Principles of Conscience. Chapter 14, verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What a glorious verse there. We're always trying to stand on our own two feet. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not where our confidence should lie. Here we're told, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is in keeping with Romans 8, verse 29, where we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Or the promise that Paul writes to Timothy, I know that God's going to complete the good work he's begun in us. Verse 5, we get our, our, our first principle, conviction. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. That's where the conviction comes in, beforehand. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to the Lord. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. It's easy for us to look at this in some of the ensuing verses and say, well, he's speaking about diet and about what to eat or drink. But no, it's clear it's speaking about what we do and how it affects our brothers and sisters. Jumping to verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction. Here we have the first principle again. Have your own conviction before God. And now the second principle, one of conscience. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Again, we don't want to be looking back at what we've done because we were foolish. We don't want our conscience to condemn us. Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, and through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, 
that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. The next few verses, we get the fulfillment of the promise to the fathers and through the promise made through Isaiah that the Gentiles would be brought in. But let's jump down to verse 13, which many say concludes the doctrinal portion of Romans. Paul breaks into a prayer in verse 13, praying for those to whom he's writing. And it seems like he's offering an apology. He's apologizing for what he's written to them. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Oh, that we could always boast only in the things which are pertaining to God. We fight the flesh in trying to avoid that. Um, I, I'm going to ask now that you do, we do something that probably has never been done here before and likely will never be done again. But I want to say that this is with intent, this is with plan and purpose, and um, only with the heart of glorifying and worshiping God. Um, I'm going to ask you to sing, and as long as my hands are moving, I want you to sing because I want you to drown me. If those of you who had the misfortune of sitting next to me know that I'm, I don't really have a great voice. So I want you to drown me out. And I want to tell you that I got some confirmation from the Lord uh, that, yes, I could go ahead and do this, and I got this just a few minutes ago because I was a little nervous. I asked you to pick out a hymn that the Lord has spoken to you through that you, with sincerity and the fullness of heart, can worship God. I'd ask you a couple of questions. Can God hear more than one prayer at a time? Can he hear the prayers of a multitude of saints all arising at the same time? Rhetorical question, of course. How about singing? I want to ask you each, if you would uh, abide with me, to sing just a, a couple sentences of the hymn that I asked you to pick out in worship to God. And I'm going to sing one that I had picked out that the Lord had spoken to my heart. And as long as I'm waving my arms, we'll just go a couple sentences and then we're going to stop. And I, I want to use this to um, bring forth this principle of how we exist and what we're doing. And all this for the glory of God. And we know that God is not a God of confusion, right? But he can hear us as we praise him. So is everybody ready to sing? Don't let me be the only one singing up here. You ready to go? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died him for me who caused him pain and me who him to death pursued. You know, I didn't get to sing that stanza because I'm sort of fighting some allergies and I've gone into the other room when I came back in. It was like, oh, thank you, Lord. Uh, it gave me sort of confirmation. And you know, that was kind of a cacophony, wasn't it? Anybody here not know what that word means? It just means a noise, right? Cacophony, like, sort of like it sounds. Um, but do you think God was pleased in hearing you, you sing praises unto him? Again, a rhetorical question, of course so. But is that the way we want to come together? No, it doesn't Ecclesiastes, I think it's in Ecclesiastes 4, forgive me if I've got the wrong chapter, but it says, two are better than one, they get a greater return for their efforts, and if one falls, the other can help them up, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Paul spent a great deal of time writing to the Corinthians that uh, their noisy meetings, which probably sounded a little like we just did, um, 
were not a, a blessing to God. Of course, theirs weren't with intent. Um, we ought really to be offended by actions like that if it were without intent, if it was selfish and myopic, um, self-focused. But how glorious is it when we do come together with one voice and sing to the Lord? Let's go back and look at a couple of those verses that I read in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that what we did was wrong, but there's, a, again, a greater return and our hearts are lifted when we are truly unified. That was perhaps a, a strange example of, of demonstrating just that we often seek to minister and do ministry in what we're comfortable or what we like. Um, but the whole point is that when we come together, we want to be in concert to worship God in unity. And, you know, we, we do a reasonably good job here of smoothing ruffled feathers when, uh, when there are ruffled feathers here amongst uh, the brothers and sisters. But this is a, a, this is a precept of God that we should apply not just here to the meeting, but to every facet of the body of Christ, no matter where we are, applying it to all saints. Now, how well do we re relate to the other assemblies? How about to outside the assemblies? Um, is it possible that our effectiveness as servants of the living God are being uh, inhibited by pride? Um, we were talking before the meeting, and, and I made a comment. I think the only people who don't have a problem or don't struggle with pride are those who are completely blind. Uh, they don't realize they have a problem with pride. It is the original initial sin, isn't it? You know, with uh, Eve, she saw the apple was good for food, lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eye, and that it could give knowledge, you know, the pride of life. It's a vicious thing that sucks us in, and many times we don't even recognize it. Even sometimes what we think is righteous anger is propelled by pride. We know that God hates pride. You know, my last message here was rather emotional. I, I, speaking of, of some groups of believers outside of uh, this assembly, where, where many of us have friends and families, wept over the fact that they're, if they weren't embracing, they at least were allowing a, a, a line of scriptural interpretation which uh, weakens or dilutes the purity of the, the word of God. It denigrates the power of God. It begins to ask that question that Satan asks. Did God say? Or may say, well, God said that, but is that really what he means? And a lot of times we read through these lenses which block out what we should really be seeing. You know, but these groups I was speaking of, God's abundantly blessing their ministry, and I thank him for it. I, I pray for them. I spend very little time praying that God would change their views, but I spend time praying that God would continue to bless them and use them to bless others. It's a glorious thing. They're seeing souls saved. They're ministering unto uh, not only here locally but around the world, and that's a glorious thing. We should have this bond of, uh, of peace as our brother Jeff had shared. There should be peace in our gathering together, not just amongst ourselves, but even amongst others. The question is, do we manifest uh, true unity here in time? We know that, as these messages have told us, we're all one body in Christ. Unity is guaranteed for eternity, but it's not guaranteed here in time, here in the flesh, here on earth. Another question is, do we think it's important? You know, do, uh, do, our, do we believe, or more truthfully, do our actions proclaim that what we believe the Bible actually says is we only have to be in unity with those who believe exactly the way we believe? Uh, again, rhetorical questions. If we ponder these things um, deeply, we know what the, the proper answer is, but how are we going to behave? You know, if you look back to um, just going back a short distance of time to when those called the Plymouth Brethren were forming when uh, 
Groves and Newton and, and Darby came together. Another wrote of them saying they endeavored to draw a circle just wide enough to include all the saints. And there's a, a more recent, I, I, I think it was Ironside, I don't know who first said it, I know I've heard William MacDonald quoting somebody, put it this way, when it comes to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to draw a wide enough circle to include them all into our circle of fellowship. But when it comes to matters of truth and scripture and received doctrine, we need to draw a tight little circle and jealously guard that faith once delivered and our understanding of scripture. Well, how do we balance that with listening in the spirit of Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend? Iron on iron, there's gonna be some sparks, but we wanna be right in what we believe and what we teach and what we live. Our problem is we get so pedantic, so specific, minute in our details that we have to be careful because we divide. We divide in the assembly. We divide friends. We divide families. A hundred years ago or so, Dr. W. Griffith Thomas made this comment about, about the Plymouth Brethren. He says, the brethren are remarkable people for rightly dividing the word of truth and wrongly dividing themselves. He was speaking primarily of the Darbyites that were the exclusives that were separating themselves. And there's been a great deal of healing in that area. But how true that is and what causes this to come forth? Well, it can be over issues of truth and there's a time when it's appropriate to separate. But how often is it caused by pride? We rightly reject denominational uh, thinking and structure because we don't see those divisions in scripture. As a matter of fact, we see in Ephesians 2, we're told that the middle wall of partition has been destroyed, taken down by our Lord and Savior. And as Jabe Nicholson once so aptly put it, if Christ tore down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, I don't think God intended that we should build walls between we who are in Christ. In our rejection of the denominational error and some of these other problems, do we inadvertently reject brothers and sisters even if we don't mean to do so? We, were, we recognize that infighting is destructive, that there's a call for unity. And it's knowing scripture and where we stand and having convictions about doctrine uh, becomes so important that we're not fighting over things which we shouldn't be fighting over. The error comes in when pride wells its ugly head and we want to win an argument or we're gonna defend tradition when we've let things other than doctrine slip in for which we begin to contend. What did our Lord and Savior say? Let's go to Luke chapter 18. We're gonna see what, what our Lord and Savior said. Luke chapter 18, we're gonna to go to verse nine, nine to 14, it's a, again a, a familiar passage. Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9. It's telling us here who, who Christ is speaking to. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Boy, that's a, that's a telling sentence, isn't it? Who was he praying to? He was praying to himself. Sometimes I feel as if my prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. And we're going to learn why in this case. This obviously isn't a mistake. It's being pointed out. He was just praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And we can hear the pride swelling up. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. With whom would we more closely identify? <laughs> or maybe the right question is, with which one of those two would others say that we most closely resemble? Who would Christ say that we resemble? That last sentence really says it all. It's really what, the, what it's about. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, it calls to mind the admonition of the Lord saying, if you go to a feast, to a, a feast of honor, don't take the seat of honor. Don't sit close to the seat of honor. Don't take a position uh, of exaltation. Choose rather the low one. Because if you take that seat of honor, the master's likely going to come and take you and move you to a lower position and you'll be humiliated. Rather, take a, a seat far below what you think you might deserve and then the master will exalt you. And it's far better to be exalted by the master than by ourselves. We know that the Lord uh, hates pride. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a couple verses, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll just jump through. We already know what this truth is. Proverbs 8.13 puts it rather well. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Again, it says that the Lord hates pride. He hates six things, no, yea, seven. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination unto him. Now that phrase, these six things, yea, seven, uh, Kidner in his commentary says that, uh, he believes it says the list is specific but not exhaustive, and that the seventh one is the worst of all. What's the first one? It's in verse 17, a proud look. And the last one in uh, verse 19 is, and he that soweth discord among brethren. It brackets a lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart devising wicked imaginations, feet which are swift in running to mischief, and a false witness that speaketh lies. But it opens with, what does he hate? What is an abomination unto the Lord? A proud look, and he that soweth discord among brethren. In first, and again, I'll just read these. Don't, please don't turn to them. First Samuel, in the second chapter, Hannah's prayer, speaking of how the Lord's going to deal and bless and in that his way is going to prevail. In the third verse, she says, Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. To me, probably the classic example of cause and effect, of pride and a fall, is exhibited by one who comes to repentance, but it's King Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter of Daniel. He says, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While a word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty, has been removed from you. Sometimes the Lord works very swiftly and sometimes he tarries. And sometimes his hand of blessing is just removed or reduced. You know, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice that is holy and reasonable, our service we should give unto God. And then he warns us, don't be conformed to this world. Well, what does this world say? Self-esteem. You've got to love yourself. And they really build up self. That's what we're teaching our children. And you know, there's, there's really nothing wrong with self-esteem. Well, except for those first four letters. S-E-L-F. What should we esteem? In Romans 12, verse 3, Paul goes on to say, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
And then he goes on again in the next few verses to speak about how we're one body, all members of one body, and for what cause that we might have, that we might condescend, as he says in verse 16, to men of low estate and to not be wise in our own conceits. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye are you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know, it's probably been three months ago, I was preaching, street preaching down at the pier at Huntington Beach. And as we often do, we ran into a group of Christians. They were down there passing out tracts, and we had a nice time of fellowship. And the conversation came around to the denominations and why there's this separation and all that. And this guy, he wasn't quite as old as me, but... He was not a young man. And he says, I used to worry about that, but the Lord spoke to me. And he said, if I had made but one fruit tree, and that's the only fruit tree that inhabited the earth, would you be satisfied with one fruit? And this man went on to say, I answered the Lord, no, I, I, I really like that there's lots of different fruit. And the Lord spoke to me and said, well, that's why I have so many denominations and so many different groups of Christians that there would be variety and that there would be spice of life in that. That's human logic. That's not scriptural. That's somebody who's been taken captive by the earthly philosophy, as Jabe would say. We just read 1 Corinthians 1.10. That's not the heart of the Lord. No, that division uh, hurts the Lord. He's grieved over it. And as I said earlier, the quandary for us is how do we, from a practical matter, maintain separation where we need to and yet exhibit the love that Christ commanded us? He said, this is how the world will know that you're mine in that you have love one for another who are in the body of Christ. Those who are in the body of Christ. The problem, again, comes up when we let pride well up. We don't have the liberty to do some of the things that other Christians do with a clear conscience, as we were reading in Romans chapter 14. That shouldn't affect the love we demonstrate to others. We don't want to be like the church in Ephesus uh, in Revelation 2 that had left their first love. We love our Savior, but the remaining question is, do we love what Christ loves? And we know what he loves. He loves the church. He gave himself for her. That ought to always remind us on how we ought to deal with the true church, which is certainly made up of lots of godly people who have views that are a little bit different than ours. We know that God hates prides, and I, I said earlier that pride prevents. What are just a few of the things that prevents? The most important one is salvation. Why does pride prevent salvation? Because those who are not saved their pride tells them they don't need it. Pride will prevent our participation in the work of God, and usually it's because we think it's the work that's in front of us that the Lord has provided. Well, it's, it's beneath us. Sometimes it's because we're afraid. Sometimes it's because it's beneath us. It can inhibit us in our prayer life, certainly praying for others that we consider lesser. They're not worthy of our... i got other people that I really needed to pray for, not those heathen Baptists or whatever the Methobacterian, as I think David Hawking would call them. Pride will prevent purity. And why? Because we don't perceive a danger. We want to stand on our own feet. Who's going to cause us to stand? Well, it's the Lord. But if we're going to stand on our own, to some degree, he's going to let us. And when we stand on our own, we'll fall. And when we fall, we lose our purity and we're stained. The purity is gone. But he says, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness in Jeremiah 3.22. How glorious is repentance. We can repent and immediately be restored. But because of pride, we lose power, we lose performance, and we're all lost for the same reason, because in our own eyes, we're complete. We have what we need. We are correct. And Paul maintained that attitude. I have, you know, he's pressing on towards the high mark. Why? Because he has not yet attained he has not laid hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus in Philippians 3. All these questions, of course, are rhetorical. And like I said, when 
we answer in true humility if we ponder them with the scripture we know. The problem is how well do we transfer it to our, manifest it to others. And I know our hearts are by and large right with regard to identifying this as an issue. But I struggle. I am not calling for a change uh, to the assembly. I'm not calling for us to become more like the other gatherings. I love them. I love gathering together with them. But I appreciate what we have. I think that this environment, and that's why I'm here, otherwise I'd be somewhere else. This is the environment in us attempting to pattern what we see in the New Testament provides an environment that is most conducive to growth. Wonderful growth happens in those other gatherings. The Lord still works. So I'm not calling for a change of meeting or a change of style, a change of tradition. I'm calling for where it's required, a change of heart. And I confess to you that this message, the Lord led me here for me. How does it apply to you? I, I doubt that I'm the only one who's dealing with issues of pride. I spend a fair amount of time with people of other groups, and I'm often chastened. I am glad for denominational names. I will tell you that. When I go to a, another town and there's not a New Testament pattern assembly, I want to pick a place where I'm going to fellowship with other believers in worship. And I have found experientially that I need to be in a place which is fairly close to what I see to be truth in Scripture. Because when I have gone to places that exhibited a style of worship that I thought was not honoring to God, or where they were in error on the way gifts were manifested, the way individuals behaved in the meeting, not only could I not worship, but I had to spend my time asking forgiveness for being judgmental for those who didn't know any better in ignorance. Um, Priscilla and Aquila did not beat up Apollos. They took him aside and more fully explained scripture to him. So I'm glad that I know that I go someplace, I look for an independent fundamental Baptist church or something along those lines where I'm going to hear the word of truth in a manner where I can fellowship with them. What I'm asking is, if we have the right attitude here, we have the right um, structure, we're correct in rightly dividing the word, how come we're not seeing more growth? I'm, I'm troubled by that, and maybe it's I'm blind. I mean, there is blessing going on here, but is the full measure of blessing occurring? Why aren't we exploding with blessing? Why is mercy drops are falling, but for the showers we plead? How come we're not seeing greater numbers of souls saved? Why do we rightly lament a dwindling Sunday school? Why do we rightly lament the lack of new growth? Um, again, maybe I'm blind in it, but I question, is my pride holding it back? Tough questions. Do we want to see the hand of the Lord pour out mighty blessings? I may need to change my heart for that to, to occur. I suspect that I'm not the only one with that. I'm not being accusatory. I've got, like I often say when I'm preaching the gospel, I've got three fingers pointed back at me. But that's the reality. You know, we've been told that the best cure for hatred is to pray for the person you hate, that you can't hate the one for whom you pray. I'd posit that the same thing is true if we're exhibiting pride toward or against others. If we pray for them, for a hand of blessing upon them, I think, we're, I think our pride is going to diminish. And there's a, an added bonus. If we're praying for the ministry of others who love the Lord and are serving the Lord, we're participating in their work, and we're going to receive reward for that. What a... Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not so unjust so as to forget the acts of kindness we show for love toward his name in us having ministered and still ministering unto the saints. There's quite an admonition there. I'd like to finish with just a couple verses, the, the, the final couple verses out of Romans chapter 15, and then we'll conclude. 
It's sort of an example Paul gives us, as he often does. He's, he's bursting into prayer. As he's praying for him in that, the section I read from verse 13. Uh, but in verse 30, he's urging them to pray. Uh, unless you think the writer of Hebrews is different than Paul, he's the only writer that begs for those he's writing to that they should pray for him. Verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we would ask that you would help us that, that we would not be a proud one whose soul is not right within him. As our brother shared this morning, we recognize our body is a container. It contains a soul, and if we're in Christ, a spirit. That spirit is alive unto you, and it's our connection to you, and it guides us into truth, convicts us of sin, righteousness. And yet we also have a body with which we are connected to the flesh, to the world. And that soul is that instrument you have given us of decision. That one which considers, which weighs, which reasons, and then directs the flesh to submit to the flesh or to the spirit. Help us, Father, that we would not be the proud one whose soul is not right within him, but rather that we would be the righteous ones who live by faith. Help us that sin would not spring up and crowd out your hand. Help us that we would in all things accept the spirit of conviction where needed, encouragement and direction, that in all things we might exalt your name, bring glory to you, that men here on earth would see our good works and give glory to you, that we might be an encouragement to every brother and sister in the Lord wherever we find them, that when we see them in glory, we have no reason to fall on each other's necks and weep. We commit this to you, knowing again that you have promised, and as you said in Numbers, I am not a man that I should lie, neither the son of man that I should change my mind or repent. But you have promised to bring us to completion, to conform us to the image of your son. It is the desire to love the things which he loves, to understand the truth and have the courage to follow through on it, to be led that in all things, the one we love, the one we serve, the one who saved us, would be honored in our daily walk. And all these things, we come before you, Father, in the name of the one who saved us, the one whom you sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.